Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. We are jumping into the middle of a, of a, of a point that he's making, and we'll refer back to the previous verses, but we're going to start here at verse 26. This is a continuation of, of what he was applying in verse 19, but we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But I'm just going to start here with, this, with verse 26, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us this morning. Well, I was struck by the brevity of life this past week. I had been called a couple of weeks ago to visit a friend in in the hospital who, through his poor choices, was uh, struggling to live. Um, He had done significant damage to his body, and the doctors were not giving him good news. So I, I went a couple of times and visited with him, shared with him uh, some material, prayed with him, uh, encouraged him to call upon the Lord, and promised to see him the following Monday. But Sunday evening I got a call that after he had gotten dismissed from the hospital that he suddenly died unexpectedly because he was given at least some months to live. But it made me think about the brevity of life and the urgency of the gospel. And and that is the spirit in which I think the writer of Hebrews gives us these stern warnings. He's already given us several warnings in chapters 2 and 3 and especially in chapter 6. And, you know, we need to listen and hear these warnings 
and respond appropriately. Now, my friend said some positive things that gave me encouragement, uh, but I don't know the final result or where he stands with the Lord. So, let us listen to what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Take it very seriously and examine ourselves because life is brief. Now, we want to look at three things. I've given you an outline here. We're going to look at the danger of apostasy. We're going to look at the consequences of apostasy and finally the avoidance of apostasy. So the danger of apostasy is outlined here for us in verse 26. It's a rather startling verse, isn't it? Verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, if you just read that verse out of context, if you just pulled it out and, and looked at it on its own, it would be quite frightening because who here does not sin deliberately? We all sometimes deliberately sin, willfully sin. And it says there, and if you take it that way, it would mean you forfeit salvation by willfully or deliberately sinning. However, we know from the context and from the rest of Scripture that that's not what he's saying here. This is a general statement, and he's pointing to a very specific sin that was the temptation of the Hebrews. If you look at chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Let's, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely or entangles us, gets us entrapped. So in verse 26 of chapter 10, he's not talking about these besetting sins that we sometimes as believers can sadly fall into. But he's talking about the sin with which what they are struggling, that he has been talking about throughout this epistle, namely apostasy, falling away from the faith, rejecting Christ. If you notice the word for at the beginning of verse 26, uh, he, he is referring to the previous verses, 19 and following, where he encouraged them to draw near to the Lord, draw near to God with a true heart of faith and full assurance of faith and to hold fast the confession that they had made, their confession of faith in Christ, and, and to stir up one another to love and good deeds and not forsake assembling together but encourage one another. He's been saying, do these things. And sinning deliberately means and implies that they were tempted to not do these things. In fact, they were falling off of doing these things. They were not drawing near to the Lord. They were pulling away from the Lord. They were not holding to their confession. They were thinking about abandoning their confession of faith in Christ, and they were ceasing to meet together and, and therefore were not encouraging one another. So sinning deliberately here means that they were moving away from Christ, moving away from the gospel. Verse 38 to 39 confirms this. If you see there, he says, My, my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back... My soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. These people were starting to shrink back. They were in retreat mode. They were losing their courage in the face of the persecution that they 
they were facing that they had already endured to some degree, as we read in, in the later verses. Well, if we understand something about the original audience, uh, here's, here's where they were. If you're, you uh, are new to this study we've been doing, I've mentioned this several times, but the original audience for this book were Jewish Christians who had scattered outside of, of Israel, outside of Palestine, into the Roman Empire. And they, they had left those areas because of persecution, but of course the persecution was everywhere in the Roman Empire at that time. They continued to face this persecution, and that included expulsion from Jewish institutions, such as the synagogue. If you note, when Christians, uh, when, when the church was first formed after Jesus ascended to heaven, they were still going to the synagogue for a time, but as more Gentiles came in and as the food laws were not followed, they, they were rejected from the synagogues, and they formed their own churches. They were subject to suffering and shame for their confession of Jesus, stripped of the familiar and visible institutions of organized Jewish religion, and confused by the hidden character of Jesus' glory. It was veiled in suffering when he was on the earth and, and now hidden in heaven. They weren't seeing the glory. And perhaps they were even fearing death. These readers, the original readers, are tempted to turn away from the faith to fall into unbelief and to give up their pilgrimage towards God's rest and God's city. They were, beginning, they, were begin, they, were, they were being worn down from the anti-Christian culture around them. And doesn't that sound like us today? We are discouraged, aren't we? We today are just beginning to get a taste of what they experienced in the first century church. We see the mockery of Christianity. We see wholesale rejection of Christian ideal, ideals and ethics. And we see Christianity being mocked around us. So we need to hear these words. This passage and the similar warnings in chapter 6 beg a much debated question. Um, can true believers fall away? And this is when we... Often when uh, you start reading about chapter 6 or chapter 10 and these warning passages, it's a debate about were these people who are maybe falling away, were they true Christians or not? Can a true Christian commit apostasy? Should you be that afraid that it, you, know, you believe you're a true Christian and have true faith? And will there come a day when I could fall away? Well, the short answer is no. Theologically and biblically speaking, no. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to prove that to you. We can talk about that later or I'll point you to some resources. But I'll say this, and, and I think this makes simple sense. The people who fall away rejecting the faith were never true believers to begin with. They are what Jesus described as rocky ground seed bearers in his parable of the soils. That's exactly what was going on in the, he in the, in the letter to the Hebrews, and, and these people to whom this letter was written were struggling, uh, just like Jesus said some people would. Matthew 13, 20, you remember the parable of the four soils. The farmer went out and he sowed the seed. Some fell on good soil, some fell on rocky soil, some fell on amongst the thorns, and some uh, fell into good soil. 
Some fell on the path. Did I say good soil first? Anyway, there's four soils. Rocky ground. Here's what Jesus said about it. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. You notice about this uh, rocky ground professor, one who professes faith, he hears the word, he receives it with joy, he even endures for a while but he has no root in himself and falls away. See, these people to whom the writer of Hebrews is writing had gotten a long way down the road on the journey of faith, but the seed of the gospel hadn't taken deep root in their lives, and they were being tempted to fall away. And that begs the question for us. Has the gospel sunk down into your life, and is is the gospel rooted in your heart? And is it bearing fruit? A scarier passage than this is Matthew 7, where Jesus is talking about bearing fruit in your life. And he says, and he goes on and says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. And anytime you see a a personal name repeated like that, it's a term of endearment. David cried out, Absalom, Absalom, my son Absalom, I wish I was dead instead of him. Jesus tenderly said to Martha when she was complaining about Mary just sitting there not helping her with the chores and just listening to Jesus, he said, Martha, Martha, you, know, you, you desire many things, but Mary has found the best thing and it won't be taken from her. Or when Jesus was on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It, it, it intimates a close uh, relationship, a sense that we're close. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, they they did not have true fruit. They didn't know the Lord truly. The writer of Hebrews is concerned that his audience consists of these rocky ground professors, that the gospel hadn't quite taken root in their lives. And his teaching here is meant to cause the seed of the gospel to take root in their hearts. That's why he's focusing on Christ so much and showing how great Christ is. He's talking about how he's the great high priest and all that he's done for them. He wants them to see Christ in all of his glory so that they'll embrace him further and they'll see his great love and and they will love him in return. He's trying to help the gospel get rooted down into their lives so that they'll be those Christians where the seed fell on the good soil, where Jesus says, what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands that he indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. In the case of the original audience, their fruit was absent, or it was looking suspiciously rotten. Now, as our own culture becomes increasingly hostile to Christianity, we already see some high-profile professing Christians reject the faith. 
Perhaps some here are growing weary of following Jesus and considering compromising with the world. We should all be mindful of ourselves and think, you know, one day I might grow weary of following Jesus. What should I do now to avoid apostasy? Has the gospel taken root in your life? Is it bearing fruit, the fruit of a lively, living faith in the Lord, an ongoing faith in the Lord? We'll talk more about that in a minute. But let's look at the consequences of apostasy because here he, he hammers down the, the warning even further by sharing with us what's actually going to happen to those who reject Christ. Well, first, he says in verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately in this way, in this manner, rejecting Christ, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And what he's saying there is, if you reject Jesus, you're rejecting the only sacrifice there is for sins. There's no other. He's the only way. He's the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And if you toss him to the side, there is no other sacrifice for sins. You can't make a sacrifice for sins by your works. You can't be good enough to to earn your way into heaven. Uh, There's nobody else in the world that has been provided a sacrifice for sins that you can rely upon, not your parents, not some other religious leader, only Jesus. He's the only sacrifice for sins. So by rejecting Jesus, you've rejected the only sacrifice for sins. And then in verse 28 and 29, he gives us what I call the trinity of outrage. Three things that people who apostatize are doing. Look at verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. You know, he's been comparing Jesus and Moses, the old covenant with the new covenant, and the old priesthood with Jesus Christ, the great high priest. And here he's saying, look, the law of Moses had a provision that, that uh, someone who violates that law will, will die without mercy if two or three witnesses witness against him. If the law of Moses was that strict, how much more? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who is one trampled underfoot the Son of God, completely disregarded the Son of God, the Son of God, who laid down his life, just trampled him underfoot by rejecting him, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Now that sounds pretty strong, doesn't it? That that sounds a lot like a Christian, but I don't think that he's saying that. He's saying you're profaning the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, it's like that verse in 1 Corinthians 7, 14 that talks about children. Children are holy. You know, if you have a, a, a believing wife and an unbelieving husband, the children uh, are holy. They're set apart. They're covenant children. They are in the covenant. They may not have yet had their own personal faith, but they belong to the Lord and we're bringing them up in the training and instruction of the Lord so that they will, too, take that faith upon themselves, that they'll embrace the faith that the gospel will be rooted down in their hearts, and they'll become followers of Jesus. So in that sense, they're set apart for God. They're God's children.
children. They're holy. This is why we baptize our children. So these people had been admitted into the church. They had been baptized. They were covenant people of God, yet their faith was not strong. They had been set apart for God, but they did not stay with God. They profaned the covenant. It's spiritual adultery. If a, if a husband commits adultery against a wife in a marriage, he has profaned their covenant. He's broken it. He's destroyed it. When we reject Christ we're prof- and as, as covenant members of his body, we are profaning the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, Jesus' blood. And finally, has outraged the spirit of grace. Outraged the spirit of grace. Chapter 6 talks about us tasting, tasting of the spirit, um, uh, of the good things of the spirit, um, probably talking about uh, the, the uh, sacraments. But salvation is free. God has provided it at no cost. Come, buy without money, he says in Isaiah. And when you reject a free gift, you know, what does that say to the person? Suppose you have a birthday party and uh, people bring you gifts and you don't like one person, so you say, hmm, forget it. I don't want your gift. Or flip it around. What if uh, you go to a birthday party, you think the person likes you, and you offer a gift that you thoughtfully picked out, you paid a high price for it, and they say, no, I don't want your gift. Go away. That's an outrage, isn't it? So those who reject Christ and his grace, they outrage the spirit of grace. And of course that leads to judgment. Verse 27 says, There's, if you reject Christ, the sacrifice for sins, all you have left is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Well, that's, that's stark, isn't it? Verse 30, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. He's quoting from the Old Testament there. And then this statement that sums it up perfectly, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God has made a way through Christ. And if we reject that, there's no hope. So we don't want to be those people, right? We don't want to be those who shrink back, those who reject Christ. We want to avoid apostasy. And that's the third thing we want to see here today. I was reading one commentary that I have from Bob Utley, and and I I like this summary statement he made about this passage. And I put it in the outline there. You can see it. The warnings of this inspired author, along with James Peter and the writer of 1 and 2 John, should motivate believers to continue to run the race. And that's what Hebrews is really getting at. Continue to run the race. Persevere in the faith. He goes on. The answer does not lie in an easy believism, nor in a fear-generated legalism, but in a godly life of faith, a striving toward holiness produced by an attitude of gratitude in a full, finished, and final salvation through Christ by faith. Well, let's explore each of those real quick. We want to avoid easy believism. What is easy believism? 
Well, that's uh, pretty rife in our culture. People who say, well, I, I prayed a prayer when I was younger. I walked an aisle. I went down to the altar. Uh, I checked the box. I have a spiritual birth certificate. Yet there was never any true repentance, no change of lifestyle. And they're not bearing any fruit. They have their fire insurance, they think. And so they don't really give it much more thought than that. Yeah, they may go to church. They may go to Bible studies. They are probably very moral people. But it goes no further than that. They have no root in themselves. The gospel hasn't sunk down into their lives, and there's no fruit being produced. See, here's what people who fall into easy believism are getting wrong. Salvation not only includes saving us from something, but it includes saving us to something. Let me repeat that. Salvation not only includes saving us from something, namely judgment, well-deserved eternal punishment for our sins, We're saved from that, sure, yes, but we're saved to something, to a relationship with the Lord, to being able to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, to being grafted into the vine and abiding in Christ and having a relationship with God, which is what we as humans were created to have. We were created to know God. And enjoy God. So we're just, salvation is not just that we've, we're not going to hell. It's that we can know God. We can have a relationship with God. The covenant promise is, I will be your God and you will be my people. That is a relationship. It's a marriage, a covenant relationship. And what would a marriage be is, is I've gotten married, I've checked the box, but I don't want to have anything to do with you, wife. That's not a marriage. See, we're saved into that. That's what Jesus was talking about in John 15. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. That's why people who fall into easy believism don't bear any fruit because they're not abiding in Christ. They're not connected to Christ. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus invites us to abide in him and to know him. So we're not just saved from something, we're saved to something. Here's a test. Think about heaven. You all want to be there because you don't want to be in hell. But is heaven about more, to, more uh, for, for you? Is heaven more about, I'm going to get to see my loved ones who have gone on to glory before me? That's what I'm looking forward to in heaven. Seeing my mother, seeing my father, my grandparents. Is that what you're looking forward to? Or is it about 
seeing the Lord. We just sang that. I need thee, precious Jesus, and hope to see thee soon. Encircled with a rainbow and seated on thy throne, there with thy blood-bought children, my joy shall ever be to sing my Jesus' praises to gaze, O Lord, on thee. That's the chief glory. That's the chief desire of a true believer, to know the Lord, to be with the Lord, to have communion with the Lord. Do you delight to pray? Do you delight to come to worship, to know that you're in the very presence of God? What a privilege that is, that we can know God and He can hear what we're saying and He can, he can know our hearts. Even though we're sinners, He accepts us and invites us in. So easy, easy believism is not the type of faith that produces fruit or endures to the end. See, verse 34 says, you had compassion on those in prison. This is, they're reaching back, looking back. He's reminding them of their previous faithfulness in the midst of persecution. You had compassion on those in prison. Some of their friends had been thrown in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So they went to see their Christian friends in prison, perhaps that identified them as Christians. So the people who were persecuting Christians came in behind them while they were off visiting their friends in prison, and they took all their stuff. And they said, yay, it's no big deal. We'll joyfully accept that because we've got something that's better and abiding. We have the Lord. We have an inheritance in the new heavens and new earth. Those things will last forever. Those things abide. And it's better than my car or my donkey. They didn't have cars back then. Or my house or whatever it is that we have. But what are we like today? We're more interested in the goods that we have. Accumulating stuff. Do we really believe that we have a better possession and an abiding one? See, that example, right there in verse 34, is not indicative of easy believism because easy believists want the world and heaven. They want both, and you can't have both. Well, secondly, we need to avoid fear-generated legalism. You hear these warnings. Some of you might be tempted to say, Ooh, I better tighten up. I better start uh, doing more, crossing more T's, dotting more I's, being more moral. You're, all you're doing is trying to save yourself by your morality, by your goodness, by your religiosity. That won't last either. It will disappoint you because you're imperfect. You're a sinner and you'll fall short and you'll ne never be able to have a sense that you've done enough because you can't do enough. It's by grace that you're saved through faith. And finally, the right way to think about it. Embrace a godly life of faith. Living out your faith. Striving toward holiness. Not legalistically, but a holiness that is produced by an attitude of gratitude in a full, finished, and final salvation through Christ by faith. You know, as we think about all that Jesus has done for us 
And we are truly grateful for that. That makes you want to serve him. He's done so much for me. What can I do for him? And that's why he says in verse 19, Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, brothers, since we, with confidence, we don't have to doubt or shrink back, but confidently, because of what Jesus has done, by shedding his blood for us, we can come right into the holy place, the presence of God, by the new and living way that he opened for us through his body, his death. We have a great high priest over the house of God who is ministering to us on our behalf there at the right hand of God, pleading for us, interceding for us there at the right hand of God. So draw near, he says. Draw near. Continue to come to the Lord to walk with him. We can always draw near. We're not limited to Sunday morning. Draw near with our hearts sprinkled clean. You can have a clean conscience, clean heart with the Lord. Hold fast that confession. Hold fast to Jesus. And stir one another up. Not just come and be stirred up by the preacher, but let us all consider how we can stir one another to love and good works. We need one another so that we can endure. Don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. And then to sum up, don't throw away your confidence or your boldness. You know, I love that he says that because these, these people were beleaguered uh, and he's, he's passionately preaching. This Chapter 13 says this is an exhortation. It's not an epistle. This is probably a written sermon that was passed around to these Hebrews of the diaspora. So he sums it up by saying, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, your boldness. You know, you, you belong to Jesus. You have all these blessings and promises, and God is faithful. He's not going to let you down. So don't throw away your confidence. Hang in there. Hang in there. Jesus is still on the throne, still at the right hand of the Father. He's still your great high priest, and he's better than anything else the world has to offer. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this wonderful, encouraging passage even though it is a strong warning, Lord, we pray that its encouragements might spurn us on to, to not fall into the category of those who need this warning. But Lord, we pray that we would produce fruit in our lives, the fruit of faith, not just try to nail apples on our tree, but to sink our roots down into you, into the gospel, and therefore produce that fruit naturally. Lord, change us, transform us, revive us, wake us up, open our eyes and our hearts, grant us repentance and a deeper faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.